Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... The Children's Book Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. So I listen to a lot of audiobooks, a, a lot, nonstop. If I'm not listening to a podcast, I've got an audiobook going. And usually I'm actually hopping between two or three different stories. Sometimes I borrow audiobooks from my library, and sometimes there are books that I know I'll want to listen to over and over. Now you've got lots of options when it comes to buying audiobooks. But what if you could support local bookstores at no extra cost to you? Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of the Children's Book Podcast can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter WINNER. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. You know, I don't know if you watch the news hour on PBS, uh, but last night, and you'll probably find it on YouTube, they had an episode of um, a trans uh, black activist, and she was talking. He was talking about gay gay pride, but they were also talking about the need to recognize all the brutality against trans men and women um, of of color Um, and I think there was one incident I think the the interviewer said but there was one incident where the the trans woman was battered by you know black people you know Uh, it wasn't police brutality and she made a point that no matter what until we recognize everybody's humanity and right to be we are you know we're not going to be a more perfect society and she said it hurts her as a trans woman when the black community or any other community doesn't then mourn her death in the same way and she actually also talked about how the deaths of black men were being there's a mythology that's connected to them and we need to also expand it to it's not just black men and boys but it's you know um you know trans people you know gay people and and it was just really really interesting i haven't 
I, 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 I supported and and I felt that and I think that that's the, the, the justice of everybody having that civil right to say this is who I am and nobody has a right to question that or to belittle that or to oppress that and certainly not to kill in the name of somebody's self-identification, you know? We are all connected by our humanity. This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 601. I'm your host, Matthew Winner. Today I'm joined by Jewel Parker Rhodes. Jewel's newest middle grade novel is Black Brother, Black Brother. In the story, Jewel explores colorism, the school-to-prison pipeline, the history of Alexandre Dumas, and the sport of fencing. Dante and Trey are brothers, but Dante's skin is dark like his mom's, and most new people have a hard time believing that they're brothers, especially because Trey's skin is light. Dante's school, it's fair to say, labels him as a problem because of the color of his skin. The people in Dante's life all play critical roles in his survival, for help or for harm. And when Jewel weaves fencing and an Olympic medaled coach into the whole mix, what results is a moving and thoughtful story about race, dignity, and family. Please welcome my guest, Jewel Parker Rhodes, author of Black Brother, Black Brother. Hello. I'm Jewel Parker Rhodes, and my pronouns are she, her, and me. (laughs) And I am the author of Black Brother, Black Brother, Ghost Boys, and many other novels for youth and adults. Jewel Parker Rhodes, I am so glad you're here. Welcome back to the podcast. And more importantly, I'm glad we're finally recording after catching up for such a wonderful amount of time. (laughs) I know. We could talk to each other all day. And I do appreciate being here for the podcast. But I miss you um, you and miss seeing you in the library with your students. So we'll have to have a time to get together. I would love that. I I, it's not going to surprise you for me to say and I'm sorry to do this on recording with your interview, but but it won't surprise you to hear that I miss my students. I miss them a lot. And seeing them virtually wasn't enough. You know, absolutely. I I was teaching a semester and I had to transform to Zoom and I felt such a longing and such a hunger. And sometimes during the class, I would tear up because I just wanted to like, you know, just give them love and support. Yeah. Um, but actually, I had one African-American student in this particular ethnic literature class, and he was an essential worker at Amazon, um, and he died. Oh, yeah, um, he died the week before our last class, and it was very. Oh, maybe we should. <laughs> oh, maybe we should start over again. No, please, <laughs> like, oh, okay. Because uh, it's um, and it was really interesting because um, I had to tell the, the fellow students. So we actually had the experience of students who had gotten to know and love him um, be directly impacted by the COVID-19 experience. And I also know that right now in a moment of protest and social activism with George Floyd, that everything in that 
in our class and in that student's life and responses in class, um, that those students I taught are out there protesting for change too. Mm. Uh, but that, yes, that was, that was hard. Jewel, when we went on quarantine, uh, a number of our, we, our school started right away with virtual school. And um, as I mentioned to you off recording, this is my first year at this school. So it's been a really uh, interesting year. And I, I could say more about that, but suffice it to say, to be a first year at a school where, as I've always felt when I'm a first year at a school, this is the year I have to make it count for those kids that are about to leave for middle school. I'm going to pour everything in. And I've had such a beautiful, wonderful time with these children. But wouldn't you know that when we were on quarantine and when their teachers were reading aloud to them, I would get requests for what should we read next, Mr. Winner. And the two books that came up so often, and I believe were read by a number of our third and fourth grade classes, were Black Brother, Black Brother by a Miss Jewel Parker Rhodes, <laughs> and were What Lane by Tori Maldonado. I don't know if you've had a chance to oh. read What Lane yet, but but these are two books that I feel like my students need and they've been asking for. They've been asking to see themselves in books and to see their classmates in books. They were, um, I think my fourth graders would tell you quite proudly that um, some of our favorite moments together were when <laughs> when we came to school that one Monday and the Youth Media Awards were on and I took my laptop and ran into one of their classrooms as they were announcing the CSK and we celebrated together as so many of the books that we had shared together were recognized. Oh, and then we collectively lost our minds when Jerry Croft won the Newberry. <laughs> oh, that's so wonderful. So, oh, it's amazing. As we're here you at know, home it, thinking it, about that, that's all I can think of is like, we've shared these beautiful moments together. And I'm so glad that we have those moments in our mind. Please tell me, what were you going to share? No, I was just going to say, you know, it's you're making, you know, uh, a safe space for young people, you know, elementary going to middle school kids to talk and be introduced to these wondrous new ideas. And I often engage with college students who are actually still from an older curriculum bringing a lack of knowledge or sometimes prejudices and 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 I get that same feeling too that we're going to read these books and and open the world to one another. And special things happen when the books create empathy and they start realizing, you know, different cultures, different people, that we are all connected by our humanity. So it's sort of like oh, there are so many teachers who are doing good work. Yay, yay. So many librarians are doing good work. Yay, yay. And so many kids who are just hungry, whether they be, you know, a you know, in elementary school or in college or graduate school, just hungry for the power of literature. Yes. So we last spoke over Ghost Boys, a beautiful book that I had at that point an opportunity to read as a book club with each and every one of my fifth graders at my school, how special that was. And then we got to talk to you about it in a special book club. And I loved our conversation on this podcast over that book. But at the time, I think that you gave me a little tease of what you were working on, but but I had not yet had a chance to read 
Black Brother, Black Brother, really it was until I saw you at NCTE in Baltimore in, I believe that was November. Yes. Yeah. Wow, amazing. You well, know how that, the yeah. world has changed. Yes. Oh, it yes, really has. Yes. And in that time, not only have I have I read your book, and as I said, I've shared it with a good number of students, but I've also listened to your audio book. I'm quite a fan of audio books, and you've got a really wonderful reader reading Black Brother, Black Brother. And I felt Dante's story and his voice come off the page, and what a powerful and beautiful story, and I never knew that I would care about fencing as much as this book made me care about fencing. So I'd love, before we get into it, if you could just share a book talk, if you would, of Black Brother, Black Brother, for those that haven't come across it yet. Black Brother, Black Brother um, is a multi-layered book. In part, it's about the school-to-prison pipeline, how children of color from K through 12 are punished disproportionately for in terms of white students, and that many of them are sent to juvie or arrested for things as, you know, simple as talking back, or in some cases, just bullied into a, a system of injustice, as Dante is in the book, that he didn't actually do anything, but nonetheless, he is arrested. So that school to prison pipeline is part of my tale. The other part is also how, um, in terms of color, Dante has a brother who presents as white, and he presents as black, and how the world treats them differently based on how they look. Now, that's actually sort of inspired by my own experience of my biracial kids where one presents as white and one presents as black. And it's been very interesting to watch how the world has literally separated these two parents as my two kids, as my two characters into these different worlds and responded to them, one with privilege and one with abuse. The third thing is that the book Black Brother, Black Brother is about fencing. And that started because 30 years ago, and this is a long book talk, so bear with me. But 30 years ago, um, I found out that Alexander Duma, who is one of the world's greatest, most popular writers, uh, that he was actually a black Frenchman. And all the movies that I had loved about fencing, like Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo, the characters were always presented as just white and discovered that Duma had an African Haitian heritage and that his father was known as the Black Count and his father was a general in Napoleon's army and was considered the most expert swordsman of his day was sort of like a revelation and then it got me to thinking of how as a sport because there was a lack of representation so many children of color never even thought that they could do fencing and yet fencing can open up the worlds in terms of competition in terms of college scholarships that it's another sort of sport that allows one to develop their own self-worth self-esteem and then when we had the Olympics in Brazil, about six people on the Olympic team for fencing were kids of color, or biracial kids. And they turned out to be students of one of the first African-American fencers to medal, Peter Westbrook, who in the decades since he medaled in the 60s, he has been teaching children of color for free fencing. So all of that came there and I 
I'm sorry this is a long book talk, but my books, they're like pieces of of things that I have to like weave together and they come from disparate places. But I'm also trying to write a book that you'll want to read again and again and that you'll learn different things each time you read it. And I also want to have a book that teachers will have lots of different things that they can teach. So this is a sports book about the school to prison pipeline and the injustice of it and about representation. And no matter what shade of color you are, you are human and you should be treated equally as anyone else. I I love your book talks. One, I love your book talks. <laughs> Two, to hear the energy and excitement in your voice after spending what I have to assume was years working on this book and it is still there right at the forefront of your tongue now the following the I feel like you were just pulling a thread and it was just connecting and connecting and connecting and how wonderful that was I've got to say there are so many places I don't even know where to get into this book with you, but maybe the first and best place I should say is that one of the greatest scenes I've read in a novel for children or in a novel um, comes in your book here in the way you turn a courtroom into a fencing match. I was like, oh my word, I need to read this again. It was amazing. Jewel, the way that you, I mean, I feel in general, folks that write sports, it's got to be a challenge because sports are kinetic and we're watching them and there's energy and there's movement and things turn quickly. And when you put things down on the page, it can suddenly feel static or it has the potential to feel static. So to keep things moving and light and on your toes and and advancing and retreating while through the lens of a child processing what is going on in the dynamics of these adults deciding his fate at his school and and at large with the law was something outstanding to witness what what a beautiful testament to your ability to write i was just wow you know, I got to tell you, uh, one, I always like to write books that I don't think I can write, um, which is why they take <laughs> me so long. So when I mentioned to my husband, oh, I'm going to write a sports book, he said, what? Because I am not athletic. <laughs> I am not in sports. And, and that was a worry <laughs> and I wouldn't get it right. And sometimes I would say, I can't believe it. I'm writing a sports book. Uh, but I... I love the projects that stretch me, and I think it also indicates that imaginatively all of us have this power. All of us, you know, it's like empathy. All of us have this power to stretch ourselves, and we just need to have a society that gives us permission to do so. And most importantly, we have to give our own selves the permission to do so. So I usually write my books expecting that I might fail, but I'm going to give it my best effort. So sometimes when I get done, I'm like, whoa, I did it. <laughs> I know that. That's like what Towers Falling. I didn't think I could yeah. do that book. Those boys, I didn't think I could write that book. So there's something, too, in terms of for kids, try to do the hard thing. 
if you keep writing or thinking or you know reading or just staying within what makes you comfortable, you won't grow and have the joy of stretching and expanding your abilities and imagination. And I had a teacher in college when I was discovering that black people finally I mean, for me, finally, I was discovering that black people wrote books because I was never given a book by a person of color all the time that I was in school as a kid. And she said, do the hard thing. It's good for you. And it stuck. And she was um, a Jewish woman named Jan Cohen who became my life mentor and my sort of second academic mother and for over 30 years she um, nurtured me encouraged me and just affected my life enormously Uh, Jan died of colon cancer but whenever I think about the power of teachers yes the third grade teacher I had was terrific in the fifth grade, I can tell you stories about one of her teachers and the librarians who fed me books. But in terms of an adult becoming a writer, Jan Cohen in college was a teacher that gave me that sense of it's okay to fail. It's okay for it to be hard, but get your message right and do your best. And I'm grateful to her. Hello, my beautiful book nerds. I want to tell you about a special book club I'm running on Patreon that I think you'll really enjoy. For $25, you can receive one book per month from a title featured on the podcast. Books are hand-selected in partnership with BrainLayer Bookstore. They ship anywhere in the U.S. and Canada, shipping included, and are also accompanied by a special book club mini-podcast episode available to all patrons at this tier, breaking down just what makes this book so special and set apart. You love children's books. You love independent bookstores. You love this podcast. Let's combine all of that into one awesome piece of mail each month that can be enjoyed over and over for many months to come. The feature book we picked for July is When Stars Are Scattered, an exceptional middle-grade novel from Newbery Honor-winning Victoria Jameson and Omar Mohammed. This graphic novel tells Omar's true story of growing up in a refugee camp in Kenya. Moving, truthful, and a powerful testimony of what it means to be family. And if you haven't picked it up yet, this is the perfect chance. Visit MatthewCWinner.com and click on Patreon at the top of the page, or use the link in the show notes to access Patreon if you feel like it's a good fit for you and where you're at right now. And if it's not... Sharing the podcast with friends over social media, word of mouth, or any other means still goes a long way. Thanks for listening, for sharing, and for allowing me into your ears and your laundry folding and your dog walking and your dishwashing each week. I love every minute of it. I think that I have a lot to learn from you in that you you hold the people who have imprinted on your life and those stories, you hold them right in the front of your head, always ready and excited to share and to speak and to glorify those, those folks who brought you to where you are, who made an impression on you, who, who are expressed through your writing and the way that, 
the way that you love others, Jewel. I, I appreciate that. I want to turn to the book and I want to turn to Dante and how you how you wrote this book, how you paced, because we do start off. We start off. I mean, we, we are in this book in Dante's voice. We are hearing his narrative. But the first three chapters are titled Black Boy, The Walk and then Jail. And we start off, if you don't mind, can I, can I read the opening aloud? Would that be okay? Oh, that would be wonderful. I um, have a number of pages dog-eared, as I do. But the beginning of your book starts, in the, in the chapter called Black Boy, it starts, I wish I were invisible, wearing Harry Potter's invisibility cloak or Frodo Baggins's elvish ring, whether shrouded in fabric or slipping on gold. It wouldn't matter to me. I'd be gone disappeared. I stare at my hands, nighttime dark. They have a life of their own, clenching, unclenching. Fist, then no fist. I keep my shoulders relaxed, my face bland. My hands won't behave. No science fiction or fantasy is going to help me. I live in a too real world. Sitting, I stare at the black specks on the white linoleum. A metaphor? That's what they're teaching me in English, metaphor, except I won't believe I'm just a black speck. I'm bigger, more than that, though sometimes I feel like I'm swimming in whiteness. Most of the students at Middlefield Prep don't look like me. They don't like me either. And I'll stop there. But but to to introduce us to a character who is processing all of the data, all of the information he sees in front of himself. As a white reader, I think back to if there was ever a time when I've had to sit and think, who am I? Why am I in these circumstances? What have I done? And that's that's a privilege that that I can say that I've avoided for a great most of my life. There are qualities of my life that intersect, qualities of my um, of my identity that intersect in different ways that I have asked myself questions like that, but, but never in the way and with the weight that Dante is asking in the beginning of our story. Is that where his story started for you as well? Yes, and I think too... Um... It was sort of echoing, I think, the bind that a lot of parents who live in communities that have poor school districts and they're poor in terms of um, money, dollars, in terms of access, in terms of facilities, that most of our children of color have horrible school conditions uh, in which they are set to learn and and. So there's a choice that a lot of parents can make if they have the privilege to afford it to send their kids to a private school. And that's what my husband and I did for our kids. And from day one, they are they felt that there was just a few of them and that they were swimming in whiteness. Um, it doesn't mean that there weren't great relationships and great, great friendships. But eventually for my son, as he became a young teen, 
he started to be seen as a problem. And it was very interesting because people who had known him since kindergarten, all of a sudden when he became older, started stereotyping him. So you have this 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 bind, you know, of wanting your chil- children to have the best oppor- educational opportunities and the, some of the best educational opportunities in America, not all, but many, or in white communities that have higher tax dollars to pay for better educational facilities and enrichment and all that kind of stuff, or private schools. And I think it's very, very, very tough. Um, I think that, I don't know, I, as a parent, I did the best that I that I could. But my kids did carry a burden. And I remember, like, watching my daughter and my son, you know, when it came across Black History Month, it seemed like all their teachers read the same, same book. And they were wonderful books by, you know, just a couple or one or two Black writers. Uh, but it was sort of like, there's more diversity. There are other books that you can read. And I think that's particularly when I became centered that I wanted to write books that classrooms would use because you shouldn't have generations of kid just at or school kids reading the same book over and over and over again to represent the black community and you shouldn't pressure kids to feel that they speak for blackness that they are the role model for the whole cultural group which my kids would do and and so sugar was written about reconstruction because all the time they talked about slavery key people would look to my kids well especially my son well what do you want to tell us about slavery and it's oh it's just a horrible horrible bind and so this is a really the first time that i'm writing about something that was particular to my kids lives um and the choices I made, the choices we all make, can come with costs, um, and it did. I think that it's it's shocking and disappointing to hear that even the adults in their life, the teachers, were viewing your kids as monoliths for an experience yeah for a history and to know that there are a lot of white people waking up right now in um the wake of George Floyd's death and of others uh, in the wake of protests and of um of of taking action um i think about how much of this is taught and i think about what you just said about your son becoming a teen and how all of a sudden people started to to fear him, to stereotype him. And um and I think it's awful. And I think yeah. that it's something that we 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 uh, that we as white people need to reconcile with. We need to own that it's happening. Um I think that I, I think to where we meet Dante's mom right in the beginning of the book, Dante's mom is a lawyer and what she says to him um, on their way home from the jail um, is so powerful. I wonder if I could ask you to read it. 
Do you have a copy of the book in front of you, Jules? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Tell me what page. Would you mind reading the And column? I also want to yeah. add. Go ahead. Uh, I also want to add um, that as I felt the, the school community that my son had been a part of for, you know, over six years um, became, became so incredibly horrific. Um, from then on, my husband and I, we, we went to charter schools, we went to online schools, and eventually we went all the way to Boston for our son to find a school, and it was an art school, um, yay arts, <laughs> uh, where he was finally accepted with all the glory that he has. And it was a school that was known for accepting all the glory of, you know, children, however, whoever they you know, wanted to present themselves to the world. This was a safe place. Um, and I think that that's really interesting, the idea that four different schools, you know, long-term, short-term, four different schools before I finally found a community where my son was able to flourish. And I am privileged that I was able to afford that. And I, I'm very aware that many kids, black, white, whatever, you know, disposition that they have, trans, gay, you know, uh, children who just want to be themselves and have no way out of attending a school Monday through Friday that takes and takes and takes and they have to struggle and struggle and struggle to keep their sense of self so teachers librarians like you please you know thank you and you know please keep doing what you do um, because kids need it more than ever well and to think that to think yes. that th- the that for all that we value in education that we seem to have this this great lack in dignity preserving dignity for all oh. children and i feel like that's that's in, you know, the, That's the, the, the United Nations, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights provide securing dignity for others is something that has been emphasized in our country for decades. And yet we we are quick to mark people as problems, as um, as as others. challenges, as <laughs> others, as as. Um, you know, not willing to go along with the system. I to to take on an aside. I, I hope that this time in virtual school, if anything else, I know that my school has been reflecting on this in a really beautiful way. That even the model of virtual learning has has been a model that a number of students have really thrived under, and to be aware that all that we provide for a child and the best that we think we're doing, we might still be in the way of the structure that they need to thrive, to feel welcome, to be their best self. So to, to be constantly challenging what that, what that means and how radically we may need to, to change the way we do things in order to make sure that that child has dignity and has belonging and has a place where 
they can get that education that they have a right to is something that I'm really interested in pursuing. Absolutely. And Matthew, um, we mustn't forget how social inequities work for many children of color, many rural children who don't have access to the Internet. Right. And how that they are even more more adrift, so that you can have the willingness of teachers to to love and support them, and they can't connect. How can't awful! Connect. How awful! Here's here's home. Mom can't stop talking. She does that when she's angry or scared. Tonight she's both. Plus, she's a lawyer and talks a lot anyway. Now she's in overdrive. School to prison pipeline. This is how it starts, arresting kids of color. How come they didn't call us? Why didn't the principal call? Mom is fierce. Dad drives the car. It's winter. Early darkness blurs shapes inside and outside of the car. My face is hidden, and I'm glad. Dad's face is lit by the dashboard's glow. Police before parents. Unbelievable. Aren't you going to ask me what I did? Mom twists in her seat. She clasps my freed hands. Dante, I don't need to ask. I know you. Nothing you did could justify you being handcuffed. I can hear the wail hiding in her voice. In the rearview mirror, Dad looks back at me. Funny, Mom looks out for me. Dad and me look out for her. I'm okay, Mom. She exhales. This is how it starts. Bias, racism, plain and simple. Philadelphia, cops called on black men meeting in Starbucks. Portland, cops called on a hotel guest talking on his cell phone with his mother. That's not the worst of it. Cleveland, Tamir Rice playing with a toy gun, killed. Twelve and he's dead. Boys, men, it's everywhere, everywhere. Panic, grief. I wish mom would stop talking. Everything she says, I know. But her saying it out loud makes me feel worse. The garage door opens. See, the the ability to speak what is going on now that context of now into this, I feel like is where, where it would be so easy for a reader, for a white reader, for, for a reader to read this and say, this is a work of fiction. This can't really be what happens. This has to be like rare for something like this to happen and for you to take it and root it the way that you do providing context, I feel not only connects with what we're saying about what needs to be happening in education, providing that context, that relevance to everything about how these aren't just abstract things we're talking about. These are happening here and now to people around us, but also as you did talking about Emmett Till and Ghost Boys, to speak the names, Jewel, to say Tamir Rice's name and to remind us that he was 12. The absurdity yeah. of these things happening to boys, 
And you even so beautifully, yeah. right after that line, you, you put the words side by side, boys, men. And I can't, as a reader, not think about how how unfair it is that the black boys get robbed of their boyhood. Absolutely. Um, you know, I also want to talk about how black girls and black women um, get robbed as well. Mm. And in fact, I was going to write a novel about the experience of black girls and black women. Um, or just the whole notion that childhood, we always like to mythologize it as a sacred place in culture and society. That's why in Black Brother, no, in Ghost Boys, I mentioned Peter Pan. That's the mythology. Ah, mm. Yet a whole group of children of color, boys and girls, uh, have such trauma, you know, and that their innocence is taken away from them. But I, did, I didn't write about girls then because Tiffany Jackson had just won the CK award and she had spoken eloquently about, you know, the, the loss of innocence among young girls. But that is something that I also want to come back to. Yeah. So boy and men, so I, you know, it's kind of like you look at all my, my books, I do a lot with bo boys and girls. And so I've got to carry and speak for my son and I've, and I've got to carry and speak for my daughter as well. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I, I, I can't help now in this moment of bringing it up, but think of, uh, Nixie, Nikki Grimes and her book, Ordinary Hazards, where she speaks ah. in verse of, of her own experience as a young black girl. And, um, and you're right. I don't, it's not obviously it's not just boys it's it's awful um but i'm grateful that uh, i'm grateful that we are the we white people are are catching up or are listening or are paying attention or i don't know what um we are i hope trying and striving to see to see our children all of our children as 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 children I am. Um, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. They, uh, you know, if when I go to schools, um, you know, um, and I talk to kids and say, you know, and say, you know, um, what are what are adults supposed to do for kids? You know, and they'll they'll shout out help, support, love, all the things that we as adults need to remind and remember to live up to. And kids know that they are in a special, wondrous, glorious category and that they just being children, growing human beings and that they deserve society's love and care. And that's why it took me maybe 30 years before I could write my first children's book, because I wanted to give the best of myself, the best writing I possibly could to this audience that has so much power and that I truly believe, as they're doing it right now, going to make the world an even better, glorious place. Yeah. So every child deserves well and deserves you know that we do better live better you know and that we help them grow so 
Go kids. <laughs> Go, Go everybody kids. Take care of a kid. Go no kids. Doubt. Yeah. You know, it takes a village. We're all doing good. Uh, we're all doing good work. And I think um, that's what I like to remind people to do. It's so easy sometimes because life is complicated to get tired, to get weary. And I remember seeing this young black girl who had so much energy. My daughter was tutoring in the New York City schools. And this young black girl had so much energy. And the teachers just did not know what to do with her. And so they just sort of basically labeled her a bad child she was a troublemaker she was a problem and just sitting and reading books with my daughter she was so happy and then you know when they wanted to take her back to the classroom she would literally get on the floor and just wail and beat the floor that she didn't want to go back and that's all because there was one person one moment out of her day where she was just a kid reading a book. But I watched over many, many times that I visited at school how this poor kid um, was demonized simply because she had more energy, you know, or <laughs> the color of her skin, you know, than, than, the, than the, the community wanted to deal with. Um, so actually, if you, have, if you get a chance, my book Sugar, my book Sugar is in honor of that little girl. That that oh, for that one that girl little girl. Too. Oh, I love that. Yeah, part. that sugar. Yeah, sugar. Yeah, sugar. Sugar was inspired by that that little girl who had too much energy, too much glory for those folks to sort of like deal with as they should. Mm. And yet, you know, I'm hoping like sugar, she'll be that young girl who has an opportunity to help change the world, to travel and do wondrous things. What a spirit to keep alive. Uh, yeah. rather than yeah yeah so sugar was inspired by a little girl hey, so I met. moving deeper into this book i want to bring up fencing i love that you shared this connection with the olympics and and um the great amount of representation on the team um as well as giving dante lines like fencing isn't just motion it's tactics mind games <laughs> i love that you gave dante this sport where he feels a natural connection to it my brain right away went to two things one was the karate kid because that's a part of my childhood and this book felt like that to me fighting an adversary through through thought and through what you do with yourself and, and, and yes. thinking ahead of the game. But also I thought of like the matrix where suddenly Dante is just like, I get it. I can see the moves they're going to make. So I'm not attacking. I'm reacting. And I was just like, this yes. is this, the way that you talk about fencing. I have to imagine is like to, to a lesser degree, we'll have that like Quidditch effect where everyone in the world wanted to suddenly play Quidditch. Cause you were like, well, how can I not play this game? This is so enticing. You really entice us with fencing and it's, um, to, to have that and to have this wonderful relationship to, to Mr. Jones, to coach and, and to their team and to, to a rival at school, but to not, to not be doing fencing to, to dismantle or humiliate that rival, but rather to just show up and to be yes. comfortable in a space knowing that, that you're welcome in this space too. 
That's beautiful. Is that so cool? Well, thank that. you. And you know, um, you know, the, the um, in terms of sports, you know, there are all kinds of sports and things that children can do, and we tend to say, oh, the group ones are the best, soccer, football. But there's the kid who's the chess player. You know, uh, Evan, my son was a was a was a chess player. There are kids who maybe really desperately need fencing because they they want to be part of a team, but they like the, having that competitiveness where they present themselves just you know as an as an individual against an individual opponent. You know, uh, and so it's I, I like too that, you know, that um, there are all kinds of sports and by not exposing your children to all the different things that they can do. Because I think sports are, are great, you know, but but to have a world where every kid finds things like fencing that they can feel good about and feel good about themselves, I think is, is critical, you know? So my, my, my son was very short, so he was never going to be a basketball player. <laughs> he, did, he did do some chess and he did do some fencing and, you know, he also played music and he was very much, um, you know, he wanted to be able to play. He wanted to be, he was, he wanted to be on a team. He wanted to be with a group, but he wanted to have the challenge be one-on-one. Uh, so that was sort of my praise for fencing that Dante is the kid you know yeah not not the court but it's like on guard me and you and how do I use my mind um yes I just love I just I love that too and I wish I could fence like I loved three musketeers I wish I could fence but I can't but I can't I've never really fenced um but I got a chance to go to the Peter Westbrook Foundation and I saw some of the Olympians and all these young kids fencing in New York City and there was one fencer um that I that I met where I swear he just moves like you know a a black powerful liquidy panther you know but seeing so cool I know, but like see these men and women move. Uh, it just it just thrilled me. But they were very clear that that fencing was a mind was also a mind game, and I liked that idea. And you have to be a good, honorable person filled with integrity and fairness and a sense of justice in order to be the best at your sport. You you know what I mean? So of course that's you're gonna so win. cool. Yeah, yeah, of course you're gonna yeah. win. But it's the I love that. You know, the last thing I'm gonna read in our time together is the lead up to that amazing fencing courtroom scene. Um, because I can't help myself, but, but leave people at, at this courtroom. It's it, it, on page one thirty seven For those that want to turn to it, the text reads the courtroom door opens. Ellison, a guard barks. Ellison. Mom clutches my hand. She puts on her stern lawyer face. Dad pats my back. You got this says Trey, almost jovial, like I was playing pickup basketball. Coach whispers hurriedly, heads up, another strip, another field, see everything, on guard, Dante, on guard. I think, coach is speaking gibberish, fencing isn't life. And as I close the book, I think, wait till you read the next three pages, Dante. (laughs) 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 Ah, Joel, it's, I cannot imagine 
the work and the play and the reading aloud and the wrestling with words that you do and the listening to your characters and the studying and researching that you do to bring us the stories that you do. But I can tell you how very, very grateful I am for you and your voice and your heart and that you do write these stories for our children, for our readers. Thank you for that. Oh, I'm going to cry. <laughs> I am crying. Oh, thank you so much. Um, it took me a while to get to this place, you know, but I am doing, I think, good work. Um, and I'm so grateful that it's appreciated. Um and sometimes I get scared. Well, lots of times I get scared. Most of the times I'm scared and I'm nervous. And I do remember voices like yours. I remember my letters from kids and the hugs, and it keeps me going. So if you see another book by me, um, know that <laughs> it's just another book that I really have tried to do my very best in honor of kids, teachers, and librarians. And if it takes me a while, that means that I'm just failing and maybe not doing it good enough. But that doesn't mean I'm quitting. I'll never quit until I take my last breath. Mm. So thank you very much. Thank you, children. Thank you, teachers. Thank you, librarians, for making me, shaping me, and letting me <laughs> survived that I could get to this happy point of writing literature for you. Yes. Thank so, you, Matthew. Oh, Jewel, any, any time, my friend. We've said, you have said so much already to our children, um, but I want to give you that chance to have last word and speak directly to those readers. So I'll say it this way. Jewel Parker Rhodes, I will see a library full of children tomorrow morning is there a message that I can bring to them from you? Yes. We live in confusing, chaotic times filled with inequality and social injustice, but never ever give up hope that we have been to these challenges before and may continue to do so. But I have seen how peaceful protesters change the world with the civil rights movement. And we are having another movement and moment like those. And we're going to make the world even better. And maybe when you're adults, you'll have another crisis that you'll meet. And you, too, will fight and fight peacefully, protest peacefully, but fight with your spirit to make the world better. So don't give up hope. And also remember that be you. This is what Dante says. Be you, even if others can't see you. It's their problem if they don't see your beauty, they don't see your glory. But you keep a hold. You keep seeing you and know that I see you. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by me, Matthew Winner, in my library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 600 episodes at matthewcwinner.com. 
Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and don't reflect the ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out the show? Become a patron, and you can directly impact and help to sustain the podcast. Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that is a very good thing indeed. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cosy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.